Shalom, everyone. This is Zion, the Hebraic Congregation, with me, Luke Tanner. Today's Shabbat message is from Psalm chapter 4. You feel free to check us out on our website, zionhebraiccongregation.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I hope you enjoy. Shalom. Mighty warriors arise, yeah. Freedom does lie only away. The soon is the day when we see your face on the mount of your grace and zero. Oh, zero. Okay, Shabbat Shalom, everybody. So if you want to turn to Psalm chapter 4, that's where we're going to be today. We're going to read the psalm, and then I want to go through this commentary that I have by Raphael Samson Hirsch. I think I say that right. have that right. Yep, Samson. Raphael Samson Hirsch. Samson Raphael Hirsch, I'm sorry. So he was a rabbi in the late 1800s into the early 1900s in, I believe in Germany, it may have been Austria. And he, um, I've talked about him before, he's one of my favorites. Was not a believer, but has good insights, really knew the language very well. And he wrote commentaries on the Torah portions, the Haftorah portion, and in the Psalms. And so this is his commentary on that. And so we're going to go through it, and I want to pull some pieces out of it that I think are really good. He has a really intricate and deep knowledge of the Hebrew language and its etymology um, in a very literal sense. And so he had a lot of really good insight into um, the the spirit and the motivation and the energy behind what David was talking about. Because, again, I think as the last time I spoke on the Psalms, I talked about how, um, in my mind, I always pictured David there in his little loincloth thingy, petting the sheep and strumming his harp. And, you know, he was more of a military master genius than anything. I mean, he was a hardened, tough guy. We need to picture more like, you know, a Special Forces Navy SEAL type of person and more so than the harp strumming pacifist uh, because he was a warrior. So he writes these psalms, which are, are music. They're musical. They're, they're meant to be put to music. And anyone who knows and enjoys music, it, it connects. Music and poetry and writing connects to uh, a part of your innermost being that doesn't get expressed well other ways and music especially because it's it's wordless and so it's uh in one of my musical artists expressions it's your soul's cry you know it's it's those unutterable emotive expressions that can only be put forth through sound that is not linguistic in nature i don't know how else to put it and um I used to listen to, I still do, a lot of Stevie Ray Vaughan. And, you know, I don't know, the stuff he could say through his guitar, you could never say otherwise. And a lot of musicians do that. 
That's the beauty of music and why it touches us so much emotionally. And so he's going to talk a little bit about that, Hirsch is, when we, um, when we get into this. Because the way that they number, he numbers, and a lot of times in the Hebrew Bible, the way that the Psalms get numbered, the verses, the, very in, the introduction where it says, To the chief musician on Neganoth, a psalm of David, they, sit, they count that as verse number one. And uh, so they, it would be numbered as there's, that there would be nine verses and not eight. And it's a shame some of your more modern Bibles uh, remove those headings to the chief musician upon the Neganoth, the Psalm of David. Um, but they are part of Scripture and important. Um, so let's pray and then we'll get into this. Heavenly Father God, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this Shabbat. I thank you for your word that we can study it, learn from it. Teach us, God, what you would have us to learn, that we could take it and go live it and do what's right before you in this world. Bring the redemption soon. Gather us from the four corners of the earth back to your land and reign and rule as king on the throne, God. That's my heart's desire. So I just ask and pray for all these things. In Yeshua's name, amen. All right, Psalm number four. To the chief musician on Neganoth, a psalm of David. Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Thou hast enlarged me when I was in distress. Have mercy upon me and hear my prayer. O ye sons of men, how long will you turn my glory into shame? How long will ye love vanity and seek after leasing? Selah. But know that Yehovah hath set apart him that is godly for himself. Yehovah will hear when I call unto him. Stand in awe and sin not. Commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still. Selah. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in Yehovah. There be many that say, Who will show us any good? Yehovah, lift up the light of thy countenance upon us. Thou hast put gladness in mine heart more than in the time of, uh, more, more than in the time that their corn and their wine increased. I will both lay me down in peace and sleep, for thou, Yehovah, only make me dwell in safety. So it's a short psalm, only eight, eight or nine verses, depending on how you're, you're, uh, you're counting. But uh, I love it in verse one, hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You know, so he's recognizing out, right out of the gate that his righteousness only comes from God. And uh, verse three, know that Yehovah has set apart him that is godly for himself. Again, it's just something that God does. He sets apart. He raises up. He establishes those who are godly for themselves. And then five, offer the sacrifices of righteousness. Put your trust in Yehovah. Sacrifices of righteousness. I find that really interesting, you know, because we tend to think of, in a literal sense, which it is, a sacrifice being something that, you know, an animal or a grain offering. But it's this idea of giving up something of importance or doing something hard for a more desirable outcome, being it be a presence with God as you go into the tabernacle or the temple or to gain something. And so the sacrifice of righteous, meaning you have to do the right thing, you have to do a good thing, and a lot of times that's a hard thing to do. You don't see immediate gratification. And so it is a it is a sacrifice, an offering up of something, of doing right in this fallen world. Put your, and, then, and then it says, which I like, and put your trust in Yehovah. So you got to do the right thing. You have to sacrifice yourself. You have to give of yourself, putting your hope in, in God, in Yehovah, that he will then 
fulfill all righteousness and do what needs to be done and that you can rely on him. And then it says in 6, Yehovah, lift up the light of thy countenance upon us. You know, make his face to shine upon us. Take care of us. Look at us. Observe us. Give us what we need to survive. And, um, and then the last verse I really like, I will both lay me down in peace and sleep, for thou, Yehovah, only makest me dwell in safely. So he recognizes that only from God does his peace and safety come from. So we'll kind of get into this commentary here by, um, from Hirsch. So, in ver- so he's talking about here the introduction or verse 1 in the Hebrew Bible to the chief musician on Neganoth, the Psalm of David. So he says, The power of music elevates both mind and emotions to divine inspiration. And this lends man the strength to overcome anything that might disturb his inner peace and serenity. I just think that's so good. Isn't that so good? The power of music elevates both mind and emotions to divine inspiration, and this lends man the strength to overcome, overcome anything that might disturb his inner peace and serenity. You know, which is fascinating. And I think that's true because why else did they have music in the tabernacle, in the temple? Why did they write the Psalms and have these sing? Because it elevates your mind and your emotions to divine inspiration that lends man, man the strength to overcome anything that might disturb his inner peace and serenity. Huh? Isn't that good? I think that's good. I think it's so true. Why else would the music be so powerful? Why else would God create man to be such a musical being? You know, why would we uh, to, to praise him with the harp and the, cim- and the timbrel? Let's see. God gives man the strength. To, and then it goes on. So, so I'll read it again. The power of music elevates both mind and emotions to divine inspiration. And this lends man the strength to overcome anything that might disturb his inner peace and serenity. Uh, God gives man the strength to become master over all his affliction. I find that interesting. So he gives us the ability, he gives us the way, the tools to become master over all his afflictions. It's good. It's good. This Psalm 2 shows the struggle upward out of a mood weighed down by distress to the height of perfect, serene trust. So can you see this idea of this in the very beginning, before it really even gets going, this idea that music, God gives us this gift to uh, overcome our afflictions, to change our minds and elevate our mood and emotions, to bring us upward out of this struggle weighed down by distress, which David's life was filled with. You know, he's filled with stress, but he turns to music and praise of God to elevate his mood and emotions to be alleviated from all his afflictions. I just think that's so beautiful. And so God in the tabernacle creates, like we talked about that, with this, the fire by night, this portal, this little nucleus of serenity, which you go in, you offer sacrifice, you give of yourself so you can come in and you can commune with God and enter where the gate of that portal where God's um, transcendence dwells and their music fills the air to change your mood and your emotions. (laughs) I just think it's awesome. It's so awesome to alleviate what's outside in the fallen world and and distress and destruction and chaos. It's great. It's great. So, and then continuing on, 
uh, to verse 1. Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Thou hast enlarged me when I was in distress. Have mercy upon me and hear my prayer. So I'm going to read how Hirsch has his own translation here. So I'll read how, how he translates it. He says, Answer me when I call, O God, who deals righteously with me. Thou hast set me free in distress. Be now merciful to me and hear my prayer. So he says, Here David does not demand an immediate answer to the prayer, nor a prompt to change for the better in his distressing situation. He merely asks that he might come to truly realize the fact that God is close to everyone who calls upon him, that he will hear his cry. This awareness that God is nigh makes David's burden lighter to bear. God himself has already set him free in the past, even in such distress as that in which he now finds himself. Distresses no longer frighten him, nor does it oppress him. His spirit has found release. He has already overcome the distress within himself through the knowledge that God is near him. And here's his cry. It's good, huh? It's good. So, so David doesn't, he's not, he's, hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Thou has enlarged me when I was in distress. Have mercy upon me and hear my prayer. So he's not, he's not calling out for an immediate quick fix, you know, save me out of this trouble which is what we tend to naturally do as people. We want to be zapped out of, we all, where's God? Why doesn't, you know, if God's real, why doesn't he do X, Y, and Z? Why doesn't he save me out of this situation? But here we read that David's not asking for remedy of, of his current situation and a quick fix and salvation out of the situation. What he's asking for and, and, and relaying is that he might come to truly realize the fact that God is close to everyone that calls on him. This awareness that God makes is nigh, makes David's burden light and to bear, lighter to bear. So we all have burdens. We all carry the weight of this life. But what he, David's doing and what we need to do is ask God for the realization to know that he is ever present with us and that it makes our burden lighter to bear. He's already come the distress within himself through the knowledge that God is near to him. So we can overcome these distresses. He doesn't, they don't go away. We don't get raptured out of it all. God's there with us so we can get through it, is what's going on. Filled with this newly won peace of mind, he now rises to acquire through the power of reasoning the proper discernment of what is good and true to gain from God the proper perspective and the correct attitude. You know, we, we focus so much on, <clears throat> um, in this day and age, emotions and how are you feeling? What do you think about that? But what happens here is David, through his understanding and his prayer, he's changing his attitude and he's giving, getting a proper perspective to know that God's presence is with him so that he already has peace in the immediate situation because God's going to be there to carry him through and he'll have a lighter burden. And when a prayer does not take the form of a plea, as do, uh, I'm sorry, and when a prayer does not take the form of a plea, in other words, save me out of this quickly right now, God, and fix all my problems, then its purpose is not simply to bring a request of ours before the Lord, but to fill our hearts with the knowledge that God is the sole source of fulfillment of our desire and that we must pledge whatever good he may send us solely to the fulfillment of his will on earth. I'm going to read that again because it's so good. 
And when a prayer does not take the form of a plea, then its purpose is not simply to bring a request of ours to, Yeho- to the Lord, but to fill our hearts with the knowledge that God is the sole source of the fulfillment of our desires, and that we must pledge whatever good he may send us solely to the fulfillment of his will on earth. And that's so true. It's so good. So it's not about us asking to be f- for everything to be fixed. It's about bringing glory to God through the current situation, knowing that he's with us, giving us the strength to carry on and carry through, and that can, it can change. It has the power and the ability to change our attitudes and emotions. And it fills our hearts with the knowledge that God is the sole source of fulfillment in our lives, not the present situation. We don't get our fulfillment there. God is the source of our fulfillment. And then whatever good comes, we use solely to the fulfillment of his will on earth. Boy, it's good stuff. (laughs) It's just so good. Man. This which David desires to utter after having regained his peace of mind, since he had become aware of God's nearness in the midst of his distress. So he, David, through reasoning through this, he, he regains his peace of mind. Because it's really easy to lose your mind in this day and age. You look around, you see the chaos, you see the destruction, and we want to cry out and send our pleas, uh, our our voice of plea before God to just fix it all. And why doesn't God God cast down lightning bolts? Well, that's not how God works. It's not how he's ever worked. I mean, sometimes he'll crack the earth open and eat up certain groups of people. It's usually his own people, not not the wicked. So remember that. And, and, but, but the reality, the, the knowledge and the understanding that he gives us what we need, he's there with us so we can control our attitudes and emotions so that we can live right, we can have peace of mind, we can be stable, regulated people, and then use whatever good comes to the fulfillment of his will on earth, which will restore everything in physicality. But we always want to be, we play the victim. We want to be rescued. We want it all fixed for us. None of us want to take personal responsibility, trust in God, and change our mind and control our minds. Ah, it's just good stuff. And he sees that, you know, all from these words. Hear me when I call, O oh my God. Thou hast enlarged me when I was in distress. Have mercy upon me. Hear my prayer. It's <laughs> good. So he goes on. Verse, uh, verse 2. O ye sons of men, how long will you turn my glory into shame? How long will you love vanity and seek after leasing or deception? So he goes, Hirsch goes on here. He interprets his communion with God with this form of address directed to human beings. He sees those about him, ordinary, average men, they smile at his ideas. So he's, David, if you picture, David's looking around about him, right? And so he's interpreting, I'll read it again. He interprets his communion with God with this form of address directed by human beings. So he's, he states verse 1, and then he is then relaying what people might say to, to him in regards to his trust in God. So how long will you turn my glory into shame and love vanity and seek after leasing? Like he's, interpre- he's um, uh, anticipating the response of people, right? 
So they smile, the ordinary people that are looking at David. They even ridicule him for turning to God in such distress instead of seeking help from men. Doesn't that happen to us? Like that in today's day and age, what do you, what do you pray to God and expect something to happen? Why wouldn't you go, you know, whatever, you know, do something more physical? They smile. They even ridicule him for turning to God in such distresses instead of seeking men for help. They sneer at the thought that he might find comfort and peace of soul by raising his eyes heavenward. They feel that prayer itself is a form of self-deception, of weakness, an empty idle act unworthy of man. He therefore first addresses himself to such men, to men such as they, and abrades them because of their erroneous views on the value of prayer. So he knows that they are in error, and they do not know the value of prayer because they do not trust in the Almighty, and they have no peace of mind. But they, they lift themselves up above that and say, prayer is erroneous, and a weakness, an empty, idle act, unworthy of man. <laughs> oh, it's so good. So, uh, he goes on and says, You are all men of good breeding and of education, or of good repute, men of whom one would expect more understanding than what you have shown. So he's, he's kind of paraphrasing what David would be saying about these evil men. Or perhaps it is just because they belong to the so-called better upper social strata that they regard prayer to God as something that may be useful to uneducated men, but certainly far below their own sophisticated level of intellectual development. How much longer shall you mock as ridicule... I'm sorry. How much longer shall you mock as ridiculous shame that which actually resounds to my honor, i.e. my devotion and submission, my humility to God, as expression in my prayer? All our ways and deeds are worthless, and all our hopes are barren if they do not bring us closer to God. If we do not strive towards the presence of God, the fulfillment of His will, the winning of His favor, and His help in all these endeavors. I just think that's so good. All our deeds are worthless, and all our hopes are barren if they do not bring us closer to God. So he's anticipating what these guys are saying, but then he is, he's saying in the end, um, you know, we need God. We need to stay close to God. So verse 3, he goes on. But know that Yehovah has set apart him that is godly for himself. Yehovah will hear when I call unto him. Let me just see here what I wanted to... So he just says, basically, basically he's saying that in verse, uh, verse 3, Yehovah has set apart him that is godly for himself. In other words, those who are godly, those who do what is right, God sets them apart. You know, God does, that's uh, not the right way to put it, special things for them. I, I don't want to put it that way. Um, you know, he raises up his own people because they, and, and, and sanctifies them or sets them apart because they live according to his word. He's, they're a peculiar people, his own possession, which he creates through his word to make them something special. And so when those who believe in God live out his word, he will set them apart. 
Yehovah will hear when I call unto him. So they're going to hear. Verse 4, stand in awe, sin not, commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still. So again, he's talking to these, to these, these naysayers. So then he, he says in, in relation to this uh, communion with your own heart upon your bed and be still. Let the thought of God's ever-present omnipotence and greatness overwhelm you. Let your frail human mind consider how insignificant mortal man really is. Let these truths, which make even the skeptic question his own unbelief, penetrate your souls, so that you may realize that all human acts that are contrary to God's will are indeed worthless. Tremble and fear in such a manner that you will cease to sin. There is no need to express it in, in words or to communicate it to others. When you are quiet, alone upon your beds, quiet, alone with your hearts, with your hearts and with God, then admit it to yourselves and pledge it within your own hearts. So keeping this state of humility before God. When you recognize what you are before God, it, it keeps you in check. It keeps you humble. It keeps you where you should be. Stand in awe. You don't need to voice it. You don't need to go out and talk about it. You know, just recognize it non-verbally in your own bed at night. And it'll keep you in a lowly state where God can then use you because you're not in your own way. Okay, verse 5. Offer sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in Yehovah. So he says here, Bring unto God the sacrifices of a dutiful and righteous life. An attitude which even the man blessed with good fortune must always maintain, remembering that he must put his trust not in his material possessions, but in God then that he will be able to rejoice in his good fortune only if and as long as he can and will regard it as a sign of God's grace. So an attitude which every man blessed with good fortune must always retain, remembering that he must put his trust not in his material goods but in God. And those material goods are just can only be regarded as a sign of God's grace. So everything they have is just by the grace of God, in other words. And so if you will keep your self in check and 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 bring the sacrifices of a dutiful and righteous life again tying into that idea of humility communion with god thinking about his greatness and understanding that all he gives you is to be used to further his will and that these sacrifices of righteousness bring us closer to him and that keep us humble so that we can Give God the glory, right? Can be used of Him. And then those who are godly will be set apart, right? Will be used by Him for a specific purpose. But not really until you're devoid of yourself and your own intentions so that God can use you and you've gotten your own self out of your own way. And you're not longer focusing on your own problems and God, please fix this for me. But you're in a peaceful state of tranquility because you know that God's presence is with you and it lightens the burden of life that you have to carry and so you can sing a song that brings serenity. You know? I just love how it all ties together. 
verse uh, 6. There be many who say, Who will show us any good? Yehovah, lift thou up the light of thy countenance upon us. So 6. The vast throng says, Oh, that we could see some good. They wish to experience some good. They know of only one kind of happiness, namely that which is tangible, tangible in superficially happy circumstances. So the vast throng says, Oh, that we could see some good. They wish to experience some good. They know of only one kind of happiness, namely that which is tangible in superficially happy circumstances. They miss that, and thus their prayer is actually a plea. Gimme, 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 gimme. They want stuff. So, so then God sometimes does do extraordinary things. Sometimes he works miracles. But what usually happens is, even when he does that stuff, it doesn't matter to people. You know, they, they split the Red Sea and they're crying two days later. You know? So, therefore, those extraordinary happenings that stand out above everyday course of events and reveal the direct intervention of God are called, some Hebrew word I don't know, understanding, outstanding acts of God which in the course of our lives make us aware of his presence and thus keep us on the right path. So if we are humble and we are attuned to what God's doing and we're not looking for verification all the time because we have the understanding of God's presence with us through his will and what he does and we have this peace of mind because we've abased ourselves, then these extraordinary acts will help keep us on the path, but not vice versa. If we just say, you know, we want you, show us a sign like they tested Yeshua. And, and, and Yeshua basically said, even if I did a sign, you wouldn't believe. Because you have to have that faith, that belief first, that then when acts really happen, then they will motivate us further. But not the other way around. And then it says, let the light of thy countenance be such as be seen as such a symbol. In other words, the symbol of God's mighty, outstanding presence that keeps us on the right path. Let the light of thy countenance be as such a symbol. In other words, the light of his countenance being his word lived out in our lives gives us peace. Not so much necessarily in a physical day-to-day sense, but in a uh, completeness of life. We, we are well moored in the raging sea of life. Otherwise, as you see in the world, people's lives are just chaotic and tossed about with nothing to hold them to anything grounded foundation. And so they just grasp at straws and come up with wild ideas of how to cope and destruction ensues. You know, you see it in families all the time. You see it in relationships on a daily basis because, you know, they don't have any wisdom because they don't have any fear of God because we've removed the word of God from our lives and so we're propped up by our own pride and self-righteous acts and knowledge, which is a, a, a um, tower of Babel that'll be brought down. Okay, keep going. Verse 7. There be many that say to us, who will show us any good? I'm sorry. Thou hast put, verse 7, Thou hast put gladness in my heart more than in the time than their corn and their wine have increased. 
So he's saying this David's, uh, because he's, he's talking about, he's kind of responding to the vast throng in verse 6 that says, Oh, that we could see some good. They wish to experience some good, but they know of only one kind of happiness, which is superficial. It's tangible and superficial. But David's response is, But thou hast already put joy in my heart. I do not have to beg thee for happiness first, says David. Thou hast already put into my heart that joy which others seek outside and for which they would, a- would ask thee. I am happy since I feel near to thee, far happier than they, uh, than they. At a time when they behold their corn and their wine, the outward symbols of their good fortune and all its bounty. In other words, he's contrasting his joy and his happiness. He's already happy in his heart. He's already joyous in his heart because he knows that God's presence is with him. And so his mind is is stabilized and his emotions and his attitude is quelled and it enables him to get through the darkness and the hard parts of life whereas others need the outside superficial uh short-lived tangible you know trifles to settle themselves and so what happens in that situation you're at the mercy of what happens on the outside to you you're not control of your own happiness you're not in control of your mind everything outside is what gives you your stability whereas david's saying i don't need the stability of the corn and the wine to know that i am loved and cared for and and happy and everything's stable i have the peace of god in my heart and life because i know that he's with me and he gives me his peace because and then and then when you live in that humbled state and you're living for him, all any good that does come then gets used for his will. Whereas those that are getting their happiness and their stability mentally and emotionally from whatever's happening on the outside, they then use that for all selfish purposes and selfish gain. And that just continues the path of destruction, even though they get good things. Whereas good things that come to those who wait, right? Those who will serve God in his, according to his word, those good things then get used for his will. So, it, and I hope this is making sense. It's, I, it's, it's, I think it's great. So his happiness is, comes because he is near to God. Verse eight, I will both lay me down in peace and sleep, for thou, Yehovah, only makest me dwell in safety. So his peace, his safety is coming from God. Even though I am so, this is, he's paraphrasing what David's saying here. Even though I am surrounded by enemies and threatened by the rebellion of an entire people, I still lie down and sleep as if I were in the midst of peace and complete unity. Or I lie down to sleep in peace, i.e. at peace with everyone without the least animosity in my heart. So he is able to, because of God and his recognizing his place before God, lay down in peace because he knows all good things and protection really comes from God and not from outside circumstances. This word, da, da, da. Uh, okay, so this word of, of, of resting, of peace, expresses a concept far more comprehensive than the idea of more rest at night during sleep. It denotes the entire quiet state in earthly destiny. I like that. 
It denotes the entire quiet state in earthly destiny. He knows that all things are in God's hands, and so he has peace of mind. He's not losing his mind because of the insanity and the darkness and the wickedness that is outside that, that you know, your mind can just run with the horrible things that can happen because of it, but he knows that God's in control and he gets his peace from him. You know, and, and I want us to understand this is really real, obviously. But like, I mean, picture, put yourself in David's time. Like he's a bandit on the run from the government of the day. You know, he's got his out, band of outlaws and he's living in caves and trying to find food. And I mean, his life is really at stake. He doesn't know if he goes down and lays to sleep at night that one of his own men might kill him or if he'll get turned over to somebody or Saul show up or his son or all these different people that wanted to kill him for real throughout his life. But because of his trust in his God, he was able to not lose it. He was able to control his motions and his attitude to be happy, to be at peace when all was crazy. An entire quiet state in earthly destiny. Whatever may come my way, thou will prepare for me a situation, a destiny that will bring me security and peace. I just I just thought it was awesome. Good stuff. So, a lot there. Hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And, um, I don't know. All these concepts that, you know, you read something and it's like, yeah, that's true, but you couldn't really articulate it. But you kind of knew that it's right. And then you get somebody who writes really well and is very articulate and can see, you know, an unsafe guy who can see the truth of God's word. You know, that, if we will trust God, offer sacrifices of righteousness, give up of ourselves, use what comes for good for His own will to further His kingdom, not get our stability from circumstances that happen on the outside, but if our, our mental stability, our emotional stability, our attitude, our happiness comes from knowing that we're children of God and that He gives us and provides us with all we need and that we can enter into his courts with praise and be close to that portal of connection and then sing a psalm of joy to him because it connects to the very being of essence of what we are. You know, that's just so much more rich. That's just so much more filling, fulfilling. And then God can pour out blessings and give things to those who will use it correctly. But to want all the stuff and then I'll be happy, and then I'll be content, and then I'll do what's right, and then I'll be able to serve you, and then I'll be able to, you know, do this, that, another thing. It doesn't work like that. You know, it's kind of like the parent saying, you prove to me you're responsible, and then I'll give you a pocket knife. You know, that's basically what God's saying. You want a pocket knife? Sure. I'd love to give you a pocket knife. Show me you're responsible. I give you everything in your life so that you can function properly right? Because just like we give our children everything they need to be able to do everything that's right, live right, they got food, they've got it all. We've got it all. God gives us all that we need to be stable and productive and do what's right. When we want a pocket knife, we got to be responsible and we need to be humble and not pretentious 
not flipping it around on God and saying, well, how come, God, you're not blah, 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 blah. You know, that doesn't get anywhere. So it's a simple concept, but reiterated and, and elaborated so well. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for this word. Uh, I thank you for uh, David and his psalms and the truths that are in them and that you um, preserved them for us to learn the same lessons today. Help us to be humble, to trust in you, to follow you, to live out your word, to have our peace and security and mental stability and happiness in you and that you, we know that you are nearby. And so because of that, we can already be at peace in times of distress, knowing that you're in control. So I just thank you for all these things, God. Thank you for Shabbat. Thank you also for this first day of the new month. Give us a good month and a uh, good rest of the week. Amen. Hey, mighty warriors arise, yeah. Freedom does not. Oh, 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 oh.